find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today, we're talking with Eric J. Dolan. He's got a new book out called When America First Met China. An Exotic History of Tea, Drugs, and Money in the Age of Sale. Hello, Derek. Hello, hello Eric. I mean, hello, hello Rob. <laughs> <laughs> I'm smushing together Dolan and Eric and coming up with a new name for you. That's okay. I've How are you? Worse. I'm fine. How are you? <laughs> so I understand you're calling from your home in Marblehead. How's the birthplace of the American Navy doing today? I suppose some people in Beverly would dispute your claim that we're the birthplace, but I'll take it. Uh, everything's fine here. It's a little little overcast, but a uh, nice day. Uh, beautiful leaves on the trees. And I hear you've upgraded your writing conditions from out of the cave. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> I used to, all my last uh, few books were written down in the basement, the finished basement that had limited light, gets a little bit musty at times. So, my wife and I finally decided I need to come out of, up out of the basement in the cave so we converted our garage into my office and now I'm above ground and there's a lot of natural light and I love it. It's a much more uh, happy environment to write in. <laughs> well, I, I must say that the, the three books that we've been talking about, this one and Leviathan and the Fur Trade book, are hard to beat. So I don't expect your writing will get much better in the new conditions. <laughs> Yeah, that was one of the conditions my wife said, now that you have this nice office, you need to write write better and faster. So I'm not sure about better, but maybe I'll write a little bit faster. But uh, but thanks for those compliments. Yeah, I don't know if sunlight can power your speed or something. <laughs> so thanks for agreeing to talk about your latest book, When America First Met China. Mm-hmm. And as you know from previous episodes with, with me on this Internet Talk radio show, that this is all about, you know, individuals who are steadfastly going the distance to defend wildlife and ecosystems from assaults of environmental degradations and destructions. Mm-hmm. And so later in this show, we'll, we'll talk about how, you know, our trade with China assaulted wildlife and natural resources around the globe. But, Eric, let's, let's start with a look at um, the American colonial period, you know, before the revolution. And I was surprised to read in your book that a great number of items made in China you know, that everyone aspired to have back then. Yeah, uh, Americans had a long-standing love affair with things Chinese from the from the mid-1600s up until the eve of the Revolution. Uh, the British East India Company brought a great array of uh, exotic Chinese goods, such as tea, porcelain, and silk, to the colonies. And on the eve of the Revolution, I mean, tea was the most important, and on the eve of the Revolution... Uh, Americans consume more than 1 billion cups of tea annually. And that wasn't just wealthy Americans. Uh, the, as the supply ramped up, the price went down, and even average Americans would drink one or two cups of tea a day. And the same can be said for porcelain, not drinking it, but that was widespread. 
a huge number of Americans had uh, examples of china or porcelain, and some of the wealthier Americans would have silk or lacquered furniture. So by the time that the American Revolution rolled around, the Americans were very familiar with Chinese goods. And in fact, they would have loved to have gone over to China and gotten some of those goods themselves, but they were restricted from doing so because the British East India Company had a virtual monopoly on Far Eastern commerce. Mm. And then, uh, so then after the revolution, we were free. And, um, you know, but that's when, I guess, um, America first meets China. And tell yeah. us about the Empress of China. Okay, yeah. After the American Revolution, of course, we won and the British lost. So the British East India Company's monopoly no longer held any sway in the United States, the newly formed United States, and American merchants uh, who still had capital. Uh, a lot of American merchants made a ton of money during the war as pr privateers, sending out privateers and plundering British shipping. And a lot of these merchants uh, wanted to build up their own industrial might and also the nation's wealth. And China was a perfect opportunity. So Robert Morris, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, <coughs> got together some other investors, and they sent this ship, the Empress of China, to Canton. It left New York City on February 22nd, 1784, sailing down the East River. And at the same time, Another ship was heading to London, uh, the Edward, and on board the Edward were the definitive articles of peace. So this uh, coincidental sailing of these two ships provided a, an historical juxtaposition that could have been conjured by a novelist because the Edward was really delivering America's birth certificate, announcing the world, the creation of this new nation, and the Empress of China was making its own statement announcing to the world that America was ready to compete on the, in the international arena of, of commerce. And, and that wasn't the only coincidence of the day, because February 22nd happened to be George Washington's 52nd birthday. And uh, that dramatic flourish was particularly fitting, because nobody had done more than George Washington to help create the United States. And it was a really good omen that the ships left on his birthday embodying the hope for the future of America. And the Empress of China sails out of New York February 22nd and makes it 18,000 nautical miles to Canton, China, by the end of August of 1784. It stays there for about four or five months. It trades with Chinese merchants, uh, all sorts of goods. And when the Empress of China first arrived in China, there were a lot of other Western countries that have already been trading with China for well over 100 years. And the Chinese didn't know quite what to make of the Americans. At first, they thought they were British because they spoke the same language and they looked the same. But when Samuel Shaw, the supercargo on the Empress of China, showed the Chinese a map of the United States, the merchants got excited because here was a new country to trade with and to bring uh, goods to China and take Chinese goods away. And finally, the Empress of China came back to the United States in May of 1785. It earned its backers $30,000, about a 25% return on their investment. And between the Empress of China's sailing and the War of 1812, nearly 300 American ships made a total of 618 voyages to Canton because the success of the Empress of China encouraged other merchants to follow the same path. And the 
China trade uh, really blossomed in the first three decades and then beyond of America's history. It's it's interesting that the ship was called the Empress of China. That suggests that was the ship built for this voyage, or was this one of those privateer vessels that was refitted? No, the the ship was being built in Boston when Robert Morris and his backers sort of found it. It it and they it was right at the beginning of the process. It didn't have a name yet, but once they decided that it was going to go to China, they came up with the name Empress of of China. And, but it was built uh, for that purpose, so. Yeah. They really wanted to trade with China. They were investing major capital that, you know, they, they report about the profit they made, which means, you know, how much they paid for the goods and how much they sold the goods for, the difference there. But, right. well, you they know, invest- a lot of investments right, right. in building ships and stuff. Yeah, they invested in the whole cost of the voyage, including the building of the ship, oh. all, all the goods on board, was about $120,000, which was a huge amount of money back <laughs> right after the American Revolution, and as I said, they earned about thirty thousand dollars, about twenty five percent return, which was less than they hoped to earn, but it was still enough to make it a profitable uh, voyage. And that's when the the China trade sort of took off from there. And and how was it structured? Like, how did the trade happen when the ship pulls into uh, the harbor there in China? What what, what is the process? Well, uh, starting in 1757, before the Americans ever arrived, the emperor decided that he should keep all of these unruly Westerners in one location for trading purposes so they could have a limited influence on his citizens and also a limited opportunity to cause trouble because some of the early Europeans had caused uh, trouble for the Chinese. So this Canton trading system was instituted. By the time the Americans got there, it was well enforced and basically all of the Western merchants were allowed to trade in Canton. Their ships had to anchor in the Pearl River off Wampoa Island. The merchants could go 10 miles further up to Canton. And while in Canton, they had to live in this enclosed walled city within a city. It was only 12 acres in size. They had buildings there where they could live during the trading season from October to March. And these factories, as they were called, they didn't make things, but they were called factories because merchants were referred to as, as factors, were their, their place of business. And then the Americans and the other foreigners could had to operate under these eight regulations, one of which only allowed them to leave the Waldorf area a couple of times a month. They had to be chaperoned, and they could only go to certain places. Another restriction was there were no Western women allowed in the Canton factory area, but some American women would not be denied and disguised themselves and snuck into Canton, only to be discovered and kicked out later by the Chinese. So this is this Canton trading system stayed in place until the early 1840s and uh, the end of the first Opium War. Oh my gosh! And one other thing to mention is while they were in Canton, the Americans and the other foreigners had to operate or trade with a Hong merchant who was responsible for the foreigners while they were in China. And the most famous of all the Hong merchants was a guy named Haukwa. And in the late 1830s, near the end of his life, it was reported that he was worth $26 million, which would have made him, if not the richest man in the world, certainly one of the top two or three. And he took some of his wealth and invested in American railroads through his American merchant friends. And his descendants 
actually made a fair amount of money through these American investments to increase their fortune. It's, you know, we think about free trade, but, you know, part of the Tea Party problem in Boston was that the middlemen were being cut out of making any money. And so John Hancock and those people were very upset about that. And in China, it looks like, you know, Hoqua and other people like him really um, were gatekeepers for any trade that would go into the nation of China. Yes, they absolutely were gatekeepers. I mean, they made money, but they also paid a lot. Uh, it was referred to the term was being squeezed by the uh, government officials above them and even all the way up to the emperor. So these Han merchants, while they earned a lot in many cases, they also were forced to share a lot of their earnings with the government. So the government uh, found the trade to be a very profitable enterprise for them as well. Mm. So what what did we bring? What kind of goods did we um, bring to China to get the tea and silk and so forth? Well, uh, the Empress of China, when it went over, uh, one of the things it had on board was ginseng, 30 tons of ginseng. It also had a lot of Spanish silver dollars because silver dollars were the global currency. And in fact, during the first three decades of America's trade and even well beyond, silver was the number one. It wasn't a good, but it was the thing that we had to bring to China to pay for most of the goods. But we also rounded out our cargoes with other items, such as uh, sea otter pelts. And, you know, the mm. sea otter pelt trade was launched in the Pacific Northwest, and by the early 1800s, it was virtually an American monopoly where these ships would leave from Boston, Philadelphia, and New York. They'd go around Cape Horn, go up to the Pacific Northwest in Vancouver Island and where Oregon and Seattle are now. they trade with the Indians for these sea otter pelts and then bring them to Canton, where a prime sea otter pelt could sell for as much as $100 a piece, which was a huge amount of money back then. And uh, just keep in mind, this is a time when uh, the average American laborer might have been expected to earn between $1 and $2 a day. So sea otter pelts were an important part of our cargoes. Also seal skins. There were millions of seals that were clubbed to death and stripped of their skins to provide uh, the, fur, the pelts to the Chinese market. And they were much cheaper to buy than sea otter pelts. They ran between $0.35 cents and about $5 a piece. And then there was also the sandalwood trade uh, on the islands of Fiji and Hawaii and in the Marquesas. This sandalwood tree grew, and sandalwood trees had a fragrant oil inside of them that made them the wood particularly prized in China, where it was carved into aromatic furniture and used to make incense that was burned in houses of worship. And uh, one of the things that Americans used to do to get sandalwood in Hawaii was to send ships over to Hawaii and trade them with the local king who was trying to build up his infant navy. And in fact, the first uh, yacht, ocean-going yacht, made in the United States in 1816, Cleopatra's Barge, built right here in Salem, Massachusetts, by George Crown and Shield, was purchased later by a China trader, sent over to Hawaii, traded to King Liho Liho of Hawaii in 1820 for 500 tons of sandalwood, which was then brought to China. In addition to sandalwood, there was also something called beche de mer, 
or Trepang. Well, wait, wait. Let, let's let's talk some more about sandalwood. And uh, okay. I really like Cleopatra's barge. I mean, it's a fabulous <laughs> ship. If you go yeah. to the Peabody Museum, they in Salem they've reconstructed the whole interior of Cleopatra's barge, so you can sit in the saloon, I guess. And, uh, yeah, the, yeah. It was a gorgeous. I mean, it was a very expensive ship when it was built. Uh, this George uh, Crown and Shield was a fion of a, of a wealthy Salem family. And you're right, if you go to the Peabody Essex Museum, you can see one of the, the parlors inside of the ship. But bear in mind that after it had gone on a few voyages or cruises of the Mediterranean and other places, George Crown and Shield's heirs sold the ship to a, a Sturgis and Cabot, a China traders. But before they sold it, they stripped all the valuable uh you know, interior yeah. out of it. And that's uh, now in the Peabody Museum. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but yeah, Leho Leho, unfortunately, the ship and Leho Leho had a sad ending because in 1824, while Leho Leho was out of the country, some of his men were sailing Cleopatra's barge and apparently they were drunk and they sailed it right into the rocks off of Kauai. And where Leo Leo was, Leo Leo and his wife were in England hoping to meet the mm. King of England. And the King of England didn't want to meet these quote unquote damned cannibals. And in the oh end he did gosh. he didn't have to because as often happens to natives who are exposed to Western diseases and have you no know, immunity for them, Leo Leo and his wife both contracted measles while they were in London and they died before the meeting with the king ever took place. Yeah, it's so sad. But there are marine archaeologists who are very interested in raising the Cleopatra's barge from where it went down. The bay right. There. Yeah, I've heard about that. That'd be and, fascinating. Uh, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know what the problems are, but um, something is, is that, yeah, it's one of those, you know, after we walk on the moon, we got to raise Cleopatra's barge or something. That's <laughs> <laughs> a technological thing. You know, we, we hear a lot about the seal problems and, and the, the seal, you know, trading of seal skins and stuff. But what was remarkable was the network around the globe to get the seals to get them to China. It wasn't just, you know, whacking a few seals off the northwest of America coast before, you know, going to China or something, right? Oh, no, these, oh yeah, absolutely. These, I mean, sealing vessels were much like whaling vessels. I mean, whaling vessels had to go wherever in the world the quarry was, the, the species that they wanted to target. And the more that they hunted these different species, the scarcer they got in certain places. So they had to go find new hunting grounds. The exact same thing happened to sealers. Uh, they went all over the world, down to Antarctica, off the west coast of America, in the South Pacific, in the Indian Ocean, uh, off the coast of Africa, wherever they could find these uh, hair seals. <clears throat> so and so, I mean, the fur seals as opposed to the hair seals, they, they're different species and only certain species were really desired. But uh, this voracious appetite for seal skins, and it wasn't only the Americans who were killing them, the British, uh, Russians, other countries were out trying to get their piece of the seal skin uh, bounty. Mm. What, ha what happened is rookeries were decimated because ships would come to an area that was full of seals and seals were not difficult to kill, especially when they're on land. They didn't kill them while they're in the water. They were right. on land, and they used to go on land, and they'd take these clubs, and they'd make two lines of men on either side, and they'd 
force the SEALs to run the gauntlet between these two men and club them to death. And some SEALers apparently could skin as much as many as you know fifty or even sixty uh, SEALs an hour, and yeah. uh, literally tens of millions of SEALs over a long period of time were taken. And the SEALers themselves noticed that the population was uh, declining. Mm. Eric, we're going to take a quick break, okay. and when we come back, we're going to learn more about a Stonington sealer discovering Antarctica. Okay. We're on Facebook, along with some of the greatest minds of the world, and that includes you. Visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. We're on Facebook, along with some of the greatest minds of the world, and that includes you. Visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi. I'm talking with Eric J. Dolan. He's the author of When America First Met China, and we're talking about the trade with China back in the 19th and um, 18th and 17th centuries. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. mm-hmm. um, and and we're, we're talking about how um, in or- the Chinese like to have silver, uh, receive silver, but the, uh, the traders, the Yanks and the Brits and the various nations trading with China, would rather find something else that they could um, trade. And so this whole seal industry was fueled in part by its preciousness to the China trade. And, uh, Eric, you were telling us about how far flung they went. And there's a wonderful section in your book, uh, a story in your book about um, a Stonington sealer 
who happens to come discover Antarctica, maybe. Right. Yeah, the, exactly. The dynamic was the same with almost all these natural resources. As one area got uh, denuded of uh, seals, they would seek another. And the Stonington men were among the leaders in America's sealing industry. And there had been rumors by the 1810s of an untapped population of seals in the southern part of the world, well beyond the tip of South America. And there was even a, uh, uh, a, a newspaper article at the time that said that this is a place where seals, which had never been disturbed by man, were as tame as kittens and more plenty than at other, any other place on Earth. So, of course, these Stonington sealers wanted to exploit this uh, sealing El Dorado. So a number of them headed down and spoke to some British who had said something about the uh, Shetland Islands, uh, which had just been discovered. And they went down there, and they discovered in 1819, 1820, that there were a lot of seals down behind the tip of South America, and they brought back huge numbers of them. They tried to keep the secret quiet. Uh, and when they told the newspapers what they had been doing, they said, oh, we were just down there on a whaling voyage. But nobody was deceived, and a lot of other uh, sealers from the East Coast and other countries uh, headed down to the South. And one of them in particular, one sealer or captain, was a 20-year-old guy named Nathaniel B. Palmer. And he was in this little ship, the Hero. It was only 47 feet long and about 40 tons burden. And he decided to go even further south in the Shetland Islands, and he went a couple hundred miles further. And they were they found this large landmass that was white. It was solid ice. And he didn't know it at the time, but he was probably the first man uh, to gaze upon what we now know as Antarctica. And this is in February of 1821. And what was interesting is a fog rolled in, and it was so foggy that he couldn't beyond almost beyond the end of the ship and they were ringing their ship's bell and uh, trying not to knock in knock into anything and they heard another ring in the distance that didn't sound like a a uh, a bird it sounded like another bell and so he rang the bell again and he, there were two bells that came in return and <laughs> then when the fog lifted Palmer and his men they were they found themselves they were bobbing in between two Russian war warships which were sent by the Tsar on a worldwide voyage of scientific exploration. And the commanding officer of one of the ships in the whole expedition was this guy, Admiral uh, Fabian Gottlieb Benjamin von Bellinghausen. And he was just amazed, uh, first, to find any ship, second, to find a ship that was so small, because he was on a very big ship. And uh, he thought that he was the first, uh, he and his men were the first people to see Antarctica, but he, in a very magnanimous gesture, he, uh, according to the stories that are told, he basically said, oh, you guys, you Americans, you uh, scrappy Americans, you're the first ones that saw Antarctica. And he apparently promised uh, Palmer that he would name this new land Palmer's Land on Russian charts in honor of the Stonington ceiling captain. Now, I have to admit that historians disagree over whether or not Palmer was the first uh, human to see Antarctica, but if he wasn't the first, he was certainly one of the first, and it's a great story. 
<laughs> and we we have the Palmer Peninsula now. Yes, and which uh, is the, well, unfortunately, you know, going along with our theme of uh, natural resource depletion, what happened yeah. is when he came back, and the other Stonington sealers came back, and some of the British sealers who had been down there, and they told everybody, or word got out that there were a huge number of seals down there, Antarctica. It was like a gold rush for seal skins, and scores of ships showed up, and they quickly, they had one really good year, but then the next year, they were almost, uh, they were almost gone. And it, what was amazing is one of the things I include in the book is there was a British seal hunter named James Waddell, and he uh, wrote a little bit later after the second season when the number of seals had just greatly diminished, he wrote what at the time is just amazing. He basically says, we killed the golden goose. If we had restrained ourselves and we had only took 100,000 fur seals instead of 300 to 400,000 a year, and we, if we hadn't killed the mother seals and uh, so allowed them to raise the young to maturity, if we had basically been more restrained and not as greedy we would have been able to seal in this part of the world for decades. But then he goes on to say, because we were greedy, the seals here became nearly extinct. And I just found that a fascinating passage by somebody who in the early 1800s had what you could really say was an environmental or ecological sensibility well before that was in vogue anywhere in the world. So uh, unfortunately, the story of sealing is a tragic one for the seals, although the Americans and other sealers did uh, get rich off of it. Wow. And then there was the sandalwood, which is yeah. not, people don't know sandalwood as well as they know about sealing and whaling and stuff. Right. No, that's true. I didn't know a lot about it before I wrote the book. There are a lot of different species of sandalwood, but some of them have more of this fragrant oil than others. And, uh, the, the Chinese had long been getting sandalwood from India and other places in the uh, sort of Asian sphere. But when the Americans started bringing, and some of the other countries started bringing this sandalwood from Fiji and Hawaii and then the Marquesas, there was a ready market for it. And the way that they got the sandalwood, the Americans didn't go out and cut this stuff themselves. They basically uh, had to work with the natives, they came to, they had contracts almost where they would pay the natives in muskets or sperm whale teeth, which were greatly treasured in Fiji. And sperm whale teeth, of course, were plentiful at this time because Yankee whalemen were prowling the Pacific for sperm whales. So they come up, they, the Americans would uh, strike a contract with one of the local chiefs. There would be a payment established, and then the chief would send all of his men uh, off into the woods to cut down the sandalwood uh, and cut it into manageable sizes and then hoist it up on their shoulders and take it down to the coast where it could be loaded onto these ships before heading to uh, to Canton. And it was kind of a brutal existence. In fact, on Hawaii, uh, the king was so eager to have sandalwood cut so he could gather more ships for his navy, he was really brutalizing his own people, and they were neglecting their own crops working for him 
harvesting sandalwood. So later some, some laws were passed by the kings to try to restrict that. But it's a problem that we hear so often. It basically was a uh, tragedy of the commons. You know, what Garrett Hardin talked about in 1969 in that famous science article, here you had a valuable product, you had a lot of different countries and a lot of individuals within each country eager to make as much money as they could, as fast as they could. There were no regulations restricting what they could take. So after a certain amount of time, sometimes years, sometimes decades, uh, the resource itself was depleted, and it was the tragedy of the commons. And this happened with sandalwood. I mean, today, I'm told, I've never been to Hawaii, but I'm told, nor have I been to Fiji, but I'm told that on Hawaii and Fiji, it is very hard to find any significant groves of sandalwood, much less very large, mature trees. And that's a residue from this era. And also, even later, they were still chopping down sandalwood in the late 1800s. Um, the same can be said for sea otters. You know that sea otters on the Pacific Northwest coast and down through California, where they also took sea otters to Canton from California, they're still, many of those populations are still endangered or threatened status. And that, again, is a residue of this early trade and even a later trade that uh, continued through the 1800s, early 1900s. And seals, it's the exact same story. A lot of seal populations are still, still haven't rebounded because keep in mind, they were not taking hundreds of thousands, not even millions. They were probably taking tens of millions of seals if you look at the whole course of this history. But this is a very common story. I mean, the same thing happened with whales. Um, when, when, you, when you can make well, money... Well, what's, what's, what's different about your story is that the destruction is being driven not by people wanting whale oil lamps, but by people wanting Chinese goods. Right. Well, it's sort of a two-way street. I mean, it was the Chinese... If the Chinese didn't want these goods in exchange right. for their own goods then it wouldn't have gone anywhere. But you're right, it was, it was both a, a supply and demand. The Chinese wanted these furs, they wanted the sandalwood, and the Americans and others were more than happy to supply it, especially because the more of these goods they could supply, the less silver and treasure they had to bring over to buy all the Chinese tea and silk and porcelain that they wanted. Exactly. So, and it wasn't like Americans wanted to wear seal skin. You know, they could have their buffalo robes, but... You right. know, it was you know that they wanted their their tea and and porcelain and and you know various crafted and you know we underestimate how technologically advanced China was. Yeah, well, they were for many centuries and thousands of years. China was the foremost country in terms of uh, science and crafts and technology. I mean, they a lot of the inventions that we take for granted everything from gunpowder to paper to uh, stirrups to wheelbarrows to different kinds Compass of problem. bridges, compasses. You know, it was the Chinese that first came up with that. Now, by the time that the Americans arrived in China, it has to be admitted that the Chinese empire was starting to crumble. There was both internal dissent and unrest. And also, this is a time when Western nations powerful Western nations were coming, knocking on China's door and demanding things. And there were a series of wars, including the Opium War, which I, the Opium Wars, which I talk about at great length in the book, which helped to shatter 
the Chinese Empire, and uh, which finally it dissolved in the it really did. 1900s. And but uh, you make clear that that was because you know part of it was that the English or the Brits didn't want to trade the silver; they would rather you know send opium over. Right. They, Again, so they, it was all driven by getting stuff out of you know buying stuff from China, it drove them to, or that's why they did that. Yeah, I mean the history. The history of trade is, uh, in large part, a, a history of profits, but also of of greed. And in this case, the British and the Americans brought opium to China and totally disregarded the imperial edicts that prohibited the importation of opium into the country. And the smugglers in China were more than willing to pay silver for this opium, thereby providing the Westerners with the very silver they needed to turn around and buy Chinese goods. And a lot of the Chinese officials who were responsible for stopping the smuggling trade smoked opium themselves and also took bribes to look the other way. So it was a very complex uh, system that was uh, going on, and this is was a huge trade. I mean, nearly... 40,000 chests of yeah, opium huge. Were, were going in there. So it's a, a fascinating part of the history. What's remarkable is that today we have a problem because of American consumerism, you know, that we, we have to consume so much and, and have so much waste and are so inefficient that, you know, there's pollution and all these problems. And, you know, American consumerism is kind of squared or something when you look at Americans' need to consume Chinese goods Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just, it, it's an old problem. It isn't a new environmental problem that came up with Earth Day about American consumerism. It oh, goes no. back to, um, like you said at the beginning of the show, you know, we wanted to consume Chinese goods uh, during the colonial period. And uh, the, the search for profits drives so much of world history. It's just, it's just fascinating. I think it's one of the main drivers, if not the main driver of uh what people decide to do <laughs> and where they invest their money and where they put their time. It's incredibly important. And, you know, this whaling book and the fur book and this China book, a lot of people have said to me, this is sort of a trilogy of uh, trade and how trade and natural resources and other things help lead to the creation and growth of the United States. And I like that. I mean, I think that that's true. Yeah. It is, it is, there's a common theme there. <laughs> Yeah, well, I like your perspective of where you're coming to, coming from on that. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and then we'll come back, and um, we want to talk a little bit about another item that they traded with, which were sea cucumbers. Okay. So we'll talk about that after this break. Okay. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. 
Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking with Eric J. Dolan, and he's, his new book is out, When America First Met China. Eric, how can uh, people who are interested in today's discussion learn more about um, your, your work and what you're up to and stuff? Okay. Yeah, the best thing is to just go to my website, which is simply www.ericjdolan, that's E-R-I-C-J-A-Y, D-O-L-I-N dot com and there you can find profiles and pictures from and excerpts and reviews of all my books, the last 11 books that I've written and there's also a tour date schedule. I'm in the middle of giving talks on this book, the China book. I've, I've probably given around 10 or 12 and I've got about 20 more to go all along the East Coast and uh, so if you want to find out more about the book, and, and of course, you can buy the book at local bookstores or, or online, any online bookstore like Amazon.com, but uh, that would be great. Yes, a friend of mine heard you speak in Newburyport and was really impressed. Oh, great. great. That's a fun town to go to. Yeah, beautiful town. Beautiful. A lot of maritime history there. Exactly. Marbleheader would appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> and you did a great there was a great write-up in the Boston Sunday Globe, um, the Boston Globe, of a piece of your book. Yeah, yeah, that was that was fun. Yeah, that was good. Uh, yeah, this has been a good week. This past week, uh, the China book was number three on the Boston Globe bestseller list, and my fur trade book was number five on the paperback bestseller list, and Leviathan was number six on the paperback bestseller list. I've never had three books on any bestseller <laughs> list at the same time, so I don't, I don't think it's going to repeat itself, but it, w- it was definitely a good week, and I, I, I hope people get a chance to take a look at the book. 
Wow, that's incredible. So we're talking about the China trade and the extent that uh, people outside China, like the Brits and Americans, would go to get Chinese goods. They would, you know, to the end of the world, bottom of the earth to, to bring seals back or, um, you know, to the far-flung uh, South Pacific Islands to find sandalwood mm-hmm. and also to find um, sea cucumbers. Tell yeah. us the sea cucumber story. <laughs> yeah, this is, uh, I, as I said, you know, when I work on a book, I usually pick topics that I don't know a huge amount about. So I'm always learning stuff. And this is one of the most uh, interesting parts of the story. Uh, the Chinese had long used the, what was called beche de mer or trepang or sea cucumbers, which are found in shallow tropical and semi-tropical waters. But well before the Americans got there, the Chinese had used beche de mer uh, as a flavoring in soup. It was also supposed to be able to rejuvenate the body and enhance sexual prowess. And in fact, the the Chinese referred to uh, sea cucumbers or beche de mer as hai shen or sea ginseng because ginseng was also supposed to be an aphrodisiac and help rejuvenate the body. And I think it's funny when you read history, there are so many products that the Chinese ate that were designed to enhance sexual prowess. I, I don't know, maybe there's a good book there. Maybe they were just having a lot more fun than the rest of us, but I just find that interesting. But the sea cucumbers were uh, a big part of what the Americans brought over. They would be gathered in Fiji, Hawaii, the Marquesas, uh, other uh, South Pacific islands. And again, the Americans, just like sandalwood, the Americans wouldn't go hunting or diving for sea cucumbers on their own, they would enlist the help of the local natives trading all sorts of things uh, for their time and energy. And it was a pretty involved process. You had to go get the sea cucumbers. The deeper in the water, the species that hung out like 15, 20 feet depth, as opposed to right along the shore, were more valuable. And then they would bring them back, and they, they had to have these huge huts set up where they had fires they had to, you know, boil them first, and then they had to dry them because to transport the sea cucumbers, they had to be transported dry, and uh, then they could last for years on board a ship. But it was a very involved process, and in- interestingly enough, it also contributed to the devastation of sandalwood because in order to stoke these fires, you needed wood, and some of the wood that they used was sandalwood as well as other species that could be found on these islands. So the natives would go out and get the sea cucumbers. They'd process them, and the Americans would take them on board and bring them to China, where it was just another uh, trading item. And one other thing I wanted to mention is the uh, the hunting of sea otters, seal skins, uh, seals, and uh, de mer or sea cucumber, you know, sea cucumber not so much, but the others, you know, ended being a uh, tragedy of the commons, but it also was a tragedy for the natives in many senses. And that's because the Western trade introduced diseases, uh, tuberculosis, venereal diseases, guns, alcohol, to these native cultures, which ripped through the, the cultures. And in fact, a lot of the chiefs, uh, the chiefs on these islands, especially in Fiji, they would battle with one another to gain control over the lucrative beche de mer 
and sandalwood trade. And those fights would be deadly, and they would be made particularly deadly because the Westerners had provided the natives with, with a lot of guns, whereas before they wow, used clubs and other things. So it, it's just fascinating. The guns they, and the incentive. They, they, you know, they made them addicts to, to trade. Yeah. Oh, the, and that, you see that in the fur trade and, and a lot of other trades. It, again, it wasn't, always, it wasn't only one-sided. The, uh, the natives were eager to trade with the Westerners, but unfortunately, in the end, both the resources and the natives themselves were often greatly harmed. What's a, yeah, it's a, a humorous antidote is uh, a humorous story is that to prepare the, um, the best of air, you were saying how they needed to boil it in big pots. Right. Well, the, the Yankees would take the tri-work pot off a whale ship and set it up on the South Pacific Islands mm-hmm. to use for curing the, you know, boiling the sea cucumbers. And that was great. And then someone else would come visit the island and come across this enormous black kettle and assume that it was big enough for a man. And so you get these cartoons of, you know, the cannibals having these big pots on the, on the beach or something. And that's because it was a tri-work pot that was brought ashore for sea cucumbers, not for cannibalism. But, you know, they, I don't know about you, but I remember cartoons as a kid where that was kind of a, a, an image that would pop up yeah. all the time. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point, but you also have to add that there is, in fact, historical evidence that uh, some of these native populations did engage in cannibalism. I don't think they boiled people in pots, but they did engage in cannibalism, so it wasn't yeah, totally that's true. baseless. No, but there's also a tendency for Americans to over-denigrate uh, foreigners or aliens. Right. Oh, yeah, what you don't understand, you usually oftentimes abuse. And you leap to these conclusions of, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, when, you know, maybe there's another reason for it, like they were doing big vegetables. <laughs> but no, no, no. Uh, this is really fascinating. So we just have a few minutes, um, but uh, let's, um, let's kind of bring it together about, you know, some of the, you know, your book really highlights the contrast of um, 1784 to today in many ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I mean, my bear in mind, I, I love the 18th, 19th century, and, and a lot of my books sort of end years ago. In fact, a lot of people say, why didn't you write, uh, people wanted me to write a sequel to Leviathan that was about modern whaling, or the fur trade, why didn't you write about the fur trade in the 20th century? And I've already, I actually had a review in the Chicago Tribune of this book, a good review, and but the professor who reviewed it also said, I really wish that Eric had written a book about the China-American trade from the late 1800s up through 1972. But then he yeah, said, right. well, yeah, and then he said, well, he didn't, but I like his book anyway. So it's, I, the reason I say all that is I don't, uh, I do spend time in the epilogue talking about some of the lessons or contrasts between then and now. And I think they're very interesting, but my book really is squarely set in this older era, yet a lot of China watchers today have told me that they've found a lot that's of interesting and value. But some of the points I can make are that, you know, in the beginning, when Americans went over to China, they looked at China basically in terms of trade and how could this trade affect the American economy and their own personal fortunes. And I think today we still look at China very much from an economic perspective. How can they make us rich 
by us selling our goods there and also producing goods there. So it's very much based on economic perspective. Back then, well, let, let, let me add to that yeah. that you know your point that you that came out in our discussion how that you know back then China was the Silicon Valley of the world. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, they were they were the uh, they were the place that everybody wanted to go to get certain goods. Yeah, and another thing that was interesting about the early China trade was the deficit. You know, there was a deficit. We were we were we were importing a lot more goods than we were exporting, and we were filling the gap with silver and currency. Uh, today, we still have a big deficit. <laughs> you know, it's it's gotten a lot larger. Back then, the trade was tens of millions of dollars per year. Now, it's hundreds of billions of dollars per year. But still, I just thought it was fascinating that the dream of China becoming an almost unlimited market for American goods is still somewhat. Unrealized. Another thing is our lack of knowledge about China and Chinese culture. I have a whole chapter in the book that is uh, China through America's eyes. And back then, we knew very little about China and its culture. And what we did know was largely uh, somewhat negative. Uh, we, we had a condescending view of the Chinese and their culture. And today, there is still certainly uh, some elements of that. And we still have a lot that we need to learn about the Chinese and their culture and vice versa. Vice versa. Uh, but I w- do want to point out that today our relationship is much more important than it ever was before. And so the need to understand more about the Chinese is more critical. And I think that an important part of understanding is knowing the history and mm. that relates specifically the opium war in particular. It wasn't an American war, the opium wars. They were British and then British and French. But the Americans bear some of the responsibility because we nurtured the opium trade, which served as a spark for the war. And even though Americans know very little about the opium wars, China learned an incredible amount about the opium wars. And the opium wars continue to affect the way that China views and responds to the West, and when Western nations take actions that the Chinese perceive to be overbearing or dictatorial uh, or imperialistic in nature, China's responses are often influenced by this part of history, the Opium Wars and the other wars during the 1900s, where Westerners basically came in and uh, showed a disregard for China's rights and sovereignty. So it's important to understand that history still informs modern relations on both sides, America's side and China's side. Yes. And then there's the prevailing happenings of tragedy of the commons. Yeah, I mean, we still, I mean, every, you know, I, I bet that if you looked at almost every single natural resource that humans have ever consumed, you will find somewhere, sometime, uh, the tragedy of the commons transpiring I mean, that's one of the great things about the conservation movement and then the environmental movement is that uh, humans finally decided that unregulated activity is not always the best for the environment or the best for us. Now, of course, environmental regulations don't always work the way that we want to or work perfectly, but I would argue that's that... It. That's the only way out of the tragedy is for the different users to collaborate, to communicate, and, and self-regulate themselves. Yeah. Or self-regulate them. That's the way to do it. And the new term now is ecosystem-based management, so that we're recognizing 
that, you know, it's not just the sheep herders, um, you know, getting it together. It's also got to be the other users of the resource that have to collaborate as, a, as an ecosystem with one another, too. So it's getting more, you know, we're getting better understandings. But uh, it's a whole new way, it, you know, command and control governments don't work with uh, ecosystem-based management. Yeah, I, you know, I, I try to be optimistic, and I sort of end the book on a note of optimism that I think that if Americans and Chinese both knew more about the history, the combined history of the two countries, that they have sort of uh, maybe a little more understanding and we can move into the future a little more optimistically. I like to also think the same way about the environment, although there are a lot of horrific stories today still developing about environmental degradation. I also I have a stubborn, optimistic belief that humans are somewhat self-correcting and over time things might get get better and certainly many environmental problems are not as bad as they used to be so i try to remain optimistic while at the same time realizing there's still major problems that we have to deal with yeah and you have good reasons for both yeah Yeah. eric i want to thank you i'm talking with eric j dolan he's the author of when america first met china and eric it's really been a pleasure to talk about our early trade with china with you Okay, thanks, Rob. I appreciate it. And if people want to know more about this program, they can read a little bit about it at theoceanriver.org, or uh, they can visit Eric's website. Eric, what's your website again? It's www.ericjdolin.com. Thank you, Eric. And for all of you, thank you for listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogue. Until next time, thanks a lot. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Living Channel. We'll talk again then. Drop me in your mind.